that that song is your heart this morning as we open up uh, God's Word uh, and look into it this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to continue from a couple weeks ago. Uh, we uh, looked into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. And we're going to go down uh, this morning, uh, finish chapter 1, and go into verse 5 of chapter 2. And without thinking about it, often our reasoning is this in life. I, by my stupidity, got into this mess. Therefore, I, by my stupidity, will get out of it. <laughs> now, there's a story told of a carpenter who was nailing shingles on a roof of a house. He lost his footing and started to slide off the roof. As he was sliding, he began praying, Lord, oh Lord, help me. Still, he kept sliding. Again, the man kept praying, Lord, please help me, please help me. As he continued to slide, as he got to the edge of the roof, a nail sticking up caught hold of his pants. After he came to a stop, he said, Never mind, Lord, the nail's got a hold of me now. It might be, though that's funny, aren't we kind of like that? You know, we, we pray for God's help. We pray for God's help, and when something seemingly comes by that, that helps us or, or whatever it might be, the situation might be, we don't actually turn around and actually thank the Lord for what just took place. We actually bring the attention more onto ourselves you know, Americans used to say, give me liberty. Today, today, they just say, give me. You know, we might be more eager to accept advice if it didn't continually interfere with our plans. <laughs> you ever asked for advice or were giving someone advice and you could tell they really didn't want your advice, though they asked you for your advice? People want things to come easy for them today. The world we live in is very much about the consumer. We live in a world that wants to go from nothing to something overnight. Currently in the sports world, there are people leaving the PGA Tour to go play on a different, uh, for a different group all because they can get instant millions of dollars. And when I say millions, I'm saying you can lose and win $100 million. We live in a world that is all about instant gratification. They're, they're, it's about how they can achieve what they need to achieve. You say, well, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians this morning? What we're going to see through this text, and even what we saw a little bit, there's a common thread that goes through this passage of 1 Corinthians, and it's that of self-reliance. That of self-congratulation to a degree. And Paul is writing, and, and a few weeks ago as we were looking, we looked at the foolishness of the cross to those who were unbelieving. We looked at the fact that the cross itself, the act that took place with Jesus dying on the cross, the world sees as foolish, illogical. It doesn't make sense. Maybe you've talked with the, those who, who see it that way. You know, it's because they're looking at it through human wisdom. 
And, and an underlying comparison that Paul is making here really is what he's saying through the passage we looked at in 18 through 25 and what we're looking at this morning is that there's a difference between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And Paul is directly focusing this conversation in the context of the gospel. We looked at how it doesn't make sense for a son. And if you think about it, and I don't know if you have ever taken the time to think, really logically, from a human standpoint, it doesn't make sense what Christ did, does it? To die for millions upon millions of people from history past to history future and the present, millions upon millions of people that hate him, that don't want anything to do with him, and yet he died on the cross. Truly, we need to see in verses 18 through 25 that Paul really is pointing out that God chose to use a way of salvation that goes against all human reasoning. And we're going to see even more fully why he did that. And it's to what? It is to glorify himself. Why did God choose a way that completely goes against all human wisdom? Because he wanted himself to be glorified, himself to be magnified. It was completely divine and supernatural. So as we jump into our text this morning, he continues on from there. I'll just read in verse, start in verse 25. It says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not test rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. So Paul continues on here, and he doesn't stop in just explaining away the human expectations about God. As one commentator states it, he says here, he turns from the content of the gospel to the existence of the Corinthians themselves as believers. So Paul is starting to turn from this, the content of the gospel, the, what the gospel is, it's about the cross. Well, Jesus dying on the cross. And, 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 and at the church of Corinth, there is this what? If we looked up earlier in chapter 1, there were divisions over what? Of, of I am of Apollos and, and I am of this and all these different uh, teachers, they were, they were hung up on, on, on wisdom, on, on 
what wisdom looks like and, and following certain types of wisdom and following certain people who are wise. And so Paul is combating this, this teaching and he, he goes and he turns from the content of the gospel to the existence of the Corinthians themselves as believers. So not only is the title of the message is the foolishness of God's chosen, not only, was the mess- not only was the message or the content of the gospel foolish to the unsaved, to the world, but you know, the people God chose to save and has chosen to save doesn't make any sense. And so our big idea this morning is going to deal with understanding that our wisdom our eloquence and our very standing in life has no impact on what God has, is, and will do in saving people from sin. See, our main truth this morning is that we must let God strip away our self-reliance in living and proclaiming the gospel. Now, as we look at here, first of all, verses 26 through 31, we're going to see that in this passage... The fact that God chose the weak people of the world, and, and I'll explain to you what he means by saying weak. It's not those who, who need to get in the gym more. That's not what he's talking about. You have to, we'll, we'll, we're going to look at a little bit of, of what the culture they were, he's talking about here is, and, and, and we're going to see that there was a strong self-reliance on wisdom, on their own wisdom, on man's wisdom in living, the church was struggling with this. And they were struggling with it in how they proclaimed the gospel. We'll see that in verses 2 through 5 through Paul's own testimony. See, God chose the insignificant person to save or to save the insignificant person. Let's look at our text in verses 26 through 31. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so our first point this morning to show us that we need to step away and stop relying on ourselves, have this strong self-reliance that, that we know what we're doing. We got this. The insignificance here we're discussing is not an insignificance to God, but what man sees as insignificant. During this period of time, there was a level, there was a hierarchy. There was those who were educated. Those, there was a level of, of those who were educated. They were thought of as, as the special individuals. And so from a human perspective, the fact that God chose those who were of lowly birth he chose those who weren't the most intelligent. He chose those who did not have a high social standing. We're not born into wealth. We're not born into nobility. He chose all against all the ones that the world would have thought that God would have come to save. And he saved them and is saving them. It's interesting in this passage when I was studying, for whatever reason, I first, the first time I read through the passage, I kind of, my mind didn't really grasp onto the phrase, not many. 
And so when I'm studying, I was studying this initially, I'm thinking, well, I've seen rich people get saved. I've seen important people in society get saved. In fact, in our text, there, um, in this time, there's even evidence pointing that there were important people that got saved. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14, it mentions Crispus, who was an office holder. Erastus, in Romans 16, 23, there is heads of significant households, Stephanus, Chloe. Those who are capable of service to Paul or others presupposed a measure of wealth, Gaius, Titius Justice. And there are those who traveled for business purposes as merchants, like Aquila and Priscilla, Phoebe, again, Erastus, Stephanus, and even possibly Chloe's people. So there were people of wealth, but it's interesting, it says not many. And if you think about even in our society today, who are the ones that reject God the most? And if you work in an environment that involves those who are more educated, a higher level of education, sometimes it's harder to reason with them. It's harder to share the truth of them because they have all these in their minds, logical reasons why it just doesn't make sense. See, God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. See, our salvation is not dependent on how well you can make ethical and moral decisions. Salvation isn't dependent on how wise, quote-unquote, you are. See, God chose the weak things to shame the strong. See, our salvation is not dependent on how influential you are. When he's talking about the idea of the, the weak things to shame the strong, the strong here is not talking about physical strength. What it's talking about is a position of strength, a position of influence. See, you can be the most influential person in the world, but that doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. And God has chosen those who are not as influential to bring shame and judgment on those who are. God chose the base and despised to shame the noble. Your salvation is not dependent on how well the status of life you were born into. See, in Corinth and during that time, as well as other times throughout history, it was the noble-born that received all the immediate riches. It was the noble that received all the attention and all, and all the, the favor. And when it comes to saving someone for eternity, isn't, that's what made sense to them. That's their, that was the wisdom they are operating under. This didn't make sense. Why would God go and sit with sinners? It didn't make sense to them, did it? Why would Jesus sit at a table with a bunch of people who, who lives horrible lives? Why would he go to Zacchaeus' house? A man who stole from the Jews. He was a thief. It didn't make sense. 
So why did God do all of this? Why did God go and choose the things that are, are weak, the things that are so that to nullify the things that are going on? To, to, to go and show that what? Verse 29, that no man should boast before God. Why, why is Paul, under the inspiration of God, why is he putting an emphasis on the Corinthian believers? He's talking to the Corinthian church and saying, listen, stop getting caught up in all this, the sophists and, and these teachers of, of wisdom and all of what they're saying. Look at your own lives. Look at you. God has chosen to save you, which doesn't make sense. According to the own, your own people in your own society, Saying, and he did that so that God would be glorified, so that God would be boasted about, on or about. Paul uses four terms here to describe salvation. It's, I, I love verse 30. It says that no man, verse 29 says that no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. It's not about how wise you are. It's not how influential you are. It's not any of these things. It's but by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ. And this is what Christ became to us. He became to us wisdom. And here Paul is using the word wisdom as as a way of describing the gospel. In other words, if you want wisdom, and true wisdom comes through the gospel. It comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Not through books, not through any of those things. And not only does he talk about wisdom here, but he uses three other different metaphors for salvation. Some have taken this to be three different steps or three different uh, categories or whatever, I, I really believe that it's just talking about three different, Paul's just describing salvation multiple ways. Three different words to describe aspects of salvation. And all of these things are found in who? Christ. Found through the gospel. We see that Christ exchanges, exchanges the righteousness of God. We see what? The righteousness. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. If you're saved here this morning, God has placed his righteous account onto your account. It's a forensic term. It's a term, uh, it's really a judicial term. Paul here is talking about the believer standing before God. See, our standing before God is not accomplished by a group of wise academics or some man that may have a dream supposedly revealed to him from God. Our standing before God is not not through knowing as much about God and being able to talk for hours about God. Our standing before God does not even lean on how much of God's word you have memorized. It stands purely on the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. See, Jesus' death on the cross was an act 
that humanly speaking was foolish and illogical. But it is what gives to people when accepted by faith with repentance of sin a right standing before God. We also see that Christ models sanctification. This is a religious metaphor that's being used here. Paul is telling us that Christ modeled for us and made possible for us to live proper and godly in this present world. Really, the word sanctifies to be set apart. It is living the Christian life according to the principles of God's word. It really is an, it's kind of used, Paul uses it somewhat as an ethical term. In other words, living, how to live right and wrong, knowing, understanding that. In fact, our own dictionary defines ethics as moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. Does God's word, is it the guide for all of your activity? Not just this or this, but all of it. This is what we have in Christ. We have the ability to live set apart. Again, the world doesn't understand this. This doesn't make sense. See, living right cannot be done in our own wisdom. We cannot successfully live righteously and godly when trying to do so from a position of self-reliance. Have you ever tried to live righteously on your own? Have you ever read something or, or maybe verses come to your mind and you try to do so and, and obey that without really asking for the power of God in your life and you're just like, okay, I'm going to do this. I can do this. I can live righteously. It's pretty discouraging when you try to do it. <laughs> you just keep falling flat. It's like I, me tripping up the stairs when I came up to pray. And just trip over ourselves. In fact, James describes to us in James that it's God's wisdom, heavenly wisdom, that provides righteous living, not earthly wisdom that is influenced and concocted by the devil. Christ also made the payment for redemption by God. This term redeemed here is the idea of being bought, to being released. I don't know, when you were a kid, if you, did you, I don't know if you played cowboys and all that kind of stuff when you were a kid. I did. Growing up at camp, I did it all the time. And we had rope. And you know what you want to do with that rope? You tie each other up. Okay? Have you ever tried to get out of something that's legitimately, where you're legitimately tied up? Have you tried to get out of that on your own? Or maybe it was actually hand, those toy handcuffs and you didn't realize you could just push the little lever and it released? Okay, so that kind of nullifies a little bit of this illustration. But real handcuffs, okay, or flexi cuffs that police use, have you ever tried to get out of those on your own? Hopefully it's not because you were actually being arrested. But you, those, what? You can't, it, you can't get out, can you? You know how you get out of the bondage of Sin. Jesus Christ. He redeems us. That doesn't make sense to the world. Why would God redeem these people? They're not noble. 
They're not influential. They're not wise. They're not the the teachers of, of the day. See, as Christians, we need to be careful that we do not fall prey to thinking that anything we do will help the power of God. We can't get anyone saved. We can't redeem people. Only God can redeem others. So it is through Christ we can live righteously. When we rely on ourselves to understand God and the gospel, we fall short. For us as believers, we need to live in the realization that unless living the gospel, true wisdom will not be afforded to us. We cannot live in our own way and expect true wisdom to be granted to us. Christ embodies the wisdom of God through his death on the cross so that no man or woman can boast in anything or anyone other than God himself. So who are you boasting in this morning? As a Christian, are you boasting in Jesus Christ? Or have you begun to live your Christian life on your own? See, God called us, chose us, so that He would be magnified. God tells us to be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. And we're told to know God personally. We are told to proclaim and share God's news, not when we feel like it, but as God in His Spirit empowers us and providentially opens up opportunity. So you and I don't got this. Our wisdom is from God's view foolish. When we really let this truth sink in of what God is sharing through the example of the Corinthians is that we aren't all that. We aren't all that. So stop relying on yourself to live godly. Stop relying on yourself in, in proclaiming the gospel. I'm going to get to the proclaiming here in just a moment. But God chose the insignificant so that he would be glorified. God chose you so that he would be glorified. So if God chose you for him to be glorified, what are you doing that is not glorifying him? See, Paul uses the example to combat this idea of wisdom, human wisdom and versus God's wisdom. He used the, you know, we have the message of the cross. We have those who, who believe, the believers themselves. In Corinth, he uses, and then he turns and uses his own personal example. And our second point this morning is that God chose the unfascinating method to proclaim the gospel. What do I mean by the unfascinating method? Well, Paul shows for us here in this text, look at verse 1, it says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Each of us here this morning have probably listened to someone 
who is highly eloquent. I know I have. There are those who get up and speak, and maybe it's not even a, 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 preachy, a preacher, but just you've heard someone speak and they're eloquent. It's like the words flow off. They have everyone on the edge of their seat. They have the right phrasing for the right time. They use the right inflection of their voice at the right time. And you sit there, or maybe it's on a podcast, and you're just sitting there in awe of this person, eating up everything they're saying. Paul, through his own testimony here, says that's not the method in which God chooses to proclaim the gospel. Paul's saying, I didn't come with all of that. Because here, the church in Corinth, they're hearing this. They, they have the sophists and these teachers of wisdom, and, and, and they, are, they are eloquent. They've got all the right things. They're saying all the seem, seemingly the, the things that hit to the very heartstrings of these, the people. They got the right word in the right place. You know, and, and maybe you've also heard those speakers that weren't that. They were kind of like a pinball machine. Their statements kept going. I mean, you couldn't follow their train of thought anywhere. It was over here, over here, over here. Paul is sharing that no matter how eloquent and polished someone is in their speech, it will not further the gospel. How eloquent you are, how eloquent somebody is, has no bearing on the furtherance of the gospel. There are many preachers, those who preach, because I don't want to be, give them too much credit, but those who preach, who are eloquent, who have a following. And why do they have a following? Why is it? Because they are eloquent. They know what to say. See, God does not need the eloquent and refined now we know that Paul was talking, I think this was, I was talking with Andy a little bit about this the other day. You know, I wonder what Paul sounded like when he preached. Because Paul was educated. It, that's what's interesting about this passage, right? Paul was a very educated man. And he's saying, okay, I'm going to put this in my own words. I was boring. I didn't come with this great, speaking with this great authority. I didn't come with this bravado. I didn't preach or speak with any of that. And I wasn't even persuasive. Now, do we know that Paul used persuasive wording? All you have to do is read his letters and we know that he's persuasive. But that, that's not the kind of what he's talking about when he says persuasive. What Paul is saying when he talks about persuasive is really the, the persuasiveness from man's perspective. See, man, sa- man would say, I need to say a certain thing. I need to come up and I need to form this sentence in a certain way with certain words. And I'll be honest, 
there are times where I've been sitting in my office like, okay, how is the best way I can phrase this? How can I, and I start looking through synonyms, okay? <laughs> I'm just being honest. You look through synonyms, okay, what's the most creative word that, I, that will just blow these people's minds on how educated I am on this word? It's easy to fall into that trap when you're preparing to speak to people. But you know what? It has no bearing on the furtherance of the gospel. I can sit there and look up 15 different synonyms for one word. But all it needs is the one word. When I was in college, I actually struggled with a little bit of this. Not being eloquent. I've never struggled with that, I don't think. But I had a couple of my close friends got to preach to the entire student body. I would say by human speakingly, they they were more eloquent than me. They were more educated than me. They had better grades than me. The same two close friends got to travel for a travel team and they were the preacher on that travel team for an entire summer. And then there was me always third in the list of grades and all that kind of stuff. I struggled with this idea. I was like, is there something wrong with how I talk? Is there something wrong with me? But Paul was determined to allow Jesus Christ to be what was proclaimed, not himself. He wasn't concerned about what he looked like. He wasn't concerned about what he sounded like. What his concern was, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people hearing it. In fact, Paul admits to his shortcomings. He says here in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. When we know what, as he, as he came into Corinth, he struggled. He's saying, listen, I came, I have weaknesses, I have struggles. There are fears that I have. I mean, and rightfully so. How many times did Paul get beat up for preaching the gospel? It seemed like every time he went into a city, he was whipped, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked. It's a major trauma that could potentially be in that guy's life. But yet he kept on preaching. And what does he say in verse 2? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the second letter he wrote, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that, speaking of the gospel here, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. It's not about us and our own wisdom. Don't let fear stop you from proclaiming the truth. In fact, it's interesting in this passage, we see in, the, te- in the, the way the language, the original language is, we see both a casual approach, and I say casual approach not in how he was approaching the gospel, but in more of a, uh, a group setting and not just like an, an exhorting type of setting. He says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Really, there's, when he came into the synagogue, he sat there and he reasoned with them. 
He reasoned when he would go, in fact, Acts 18, verse 1 through 8, it says, After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Verse 4, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He sat there and reasoned with them. And then in this passage specifically, they eventually stopped. They weren't reasoning at all, taking it. And so he said, he's, this is what he says. He says, but then when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In verse 7, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus believed in the Lord with all his family. So Paul was 100% devoted to proclaiming the testimony of God. It wasn't about his own wisdom. It wasn't about his own eloquence. It was about the gospel. It wasn't about trying to help aid the gospel and how he preached. But what was it that gave him clarity of speech? We see it in this text. Look at verse 4. And my message and my preaching, and here's the more formal idea of, of preaching here, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Paul depended on the power of the Spirit in his life. in his preaching. And we see not only in his preaching, but other places throughout the New Testament as he's written, we see that he depended on the Spirit of God in every area of his life. And in the context here, it is of the proclaiming of the gospel. And why did he do all of this? Look at verse 5. Why did he preach under the Spirit of God the power of God, that your faith, as he's talking to the Corinthians here, he says that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men. See, any type of faith that is resting on the wisdom of men is not true faith at all. Men have tried and are trying, but they cannot achieve salvation. There are so many different philosophies, ways of wisdom, so to speak, out there on how to reach heaven, a relationship with God or a God. And they're all wrong. See, our faith is not built on that, but it's built on the power of God. Say, well, so, so what, what does this mean for me? I'm not a preacher. Maybe I don't have to listen to this then. No, we're all proclaimers of the gospel. We're all proclaimers of the gospel. 
And we need to stop relying on ourselves in that proclamation. Stop being afraid of messing up and proclaiming the gospel to others. You can't mess it up. If you're truly saved, you're not going to be heretical. You can't mess it up. Do you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you understand about repentance? Yes. Do you know how to tell the story of what Jesus did on the cross? Yes. That's all you need. That's all you need. Are there ways that you can give fuller answers and deeper answers based on God's word? Yeah, you can get deeper with some of it. We do on Sundays and Sunday schools. We talk deeper into the word of God, teach deeper into it, so to speak. But we need to stop being afraid of messing it up. It's not about our own wisdom. It's not, our, we don't, it's not about how eloquent you are with your coworker or your neighbor. Don't be afraid that you mess up. Maybe you say something goofy. Or maybe you say something maybe perhaps incorrect to a degree. You use the wrong word or, or you stumble over your words and, and maybe some of their rebuttal to you. It's okay. It gives you more time to pray and depend on God. You don't need to have all the quote-unquote, right words. Rely on the Spirit of God. Rely on the Spirit of God. See, we must let God strip away our self-reliance in living and proclaiming the gospel. Folks, we all too often rely on our own strength and ability to do all of this. And Paul is here writing to the church in Corinth, and they're relying on their own wisdom the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of God. Because in their own human wisdom, none of this made sense. So we do so by accepting the truths that God has chosen the insignificant people and method of proclamation to reach the unsaved with the gospel truth. how much are you depending and relying on your own wisdom when it comes to living out the gospel? How much are you depending and relying on your own wisdom when it comes to proclaiming the gospel? See, we must let God strip away our self-reliance in living and proclaiming the gospel. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for your word. Lord, I know you have challenged me from this passage. Lord, help me to put it into, into action, what you are teaching me. It's all too easy to fall prey to our own wisdom, our own thinking on how to live the Christian life rather than being God-dependent or self-dependent. All too often we, 
we find ourselves thinking we know better than you. Lord, if keep us from fearing the proclamation of your word, the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would just be doing a work in all of our lives. This morning, in your name we pray. Amen.